Hey everybody, Eric Trexler here with the good Dr. Eric Helms for another episode of Mass Office Hours. I am terribly sorry that I couldn't join for the big party last week when we had the full crew on, except for me. Um, I was absolutely debilitated with COVID. I am on the mend for the most part. Um, I'm in like the classic sick person attire right now, a gray hoodie with a gray beanie on. Uh, Voice may give out. I may get shockingly winded while talking. So there might be a time, Helms. We've done this before already on a recording where I had to just tap you in and just hit the oxygen mask and take a breather. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm nothing if not dedicated to the Office Hours mission. So we are going to do an episode here, and I think it's going to be terrific. Uh, Before we get into all the good stuff, if you have been checking out Office Hours for a while, or if it's your first time and you want to show us a little bit of support, there are many ways you could do that. You could like, there's a little thumbs up button wherever you're finding this. Go ahead and hit that. That'll be good. Uh, You can rate the show. You can review it wherever you get it. And of course, you could subscribe on whatever platform you're utilizing. So obviously, we go live on YouTube. It stays on YouTube after the fact, but we also put this up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you name it, it's up there. So like, rate, subscribe, review. And of course, uh, the bonus points go to anyone who tells a friend. You know, we're, we're out here doing this every week. We want to uh, help as many people as possible get some, uh, some evidence-based fitness nutrition uh, information out there. So uh, yeah, tell a friend, share it far and wide. And if you want to participate, if you want to submit questions, there's two ways you can do that. The best way, the preferred way, the uh, kind of the way that gets you on a special list of a preferred op- office hours participant is to join us live in YouTube in the live chat. The other way, which is also great, is to submit questions ahead of time. So if you look in the description of this video, we've got a link that's open 24-7, 365. You could drop a question in there anytime, and we will do our very best to get to it in an episode. Uh, Helms, what's new? How's recovery going for you after winning all the bodybuilding shows in the world? It's good, man. And you know the funny thing is I actually won only one of the five shows I did. Yeah, but you were, it's kind of a transitive property thing. You won a show, you also competed at Worlds, you won all the shows in the world, just more or less. I'll take it. Um, That checks out and don't peer review that, folks. So how am I doing the recovery phase? This is the the most controlled I've ever felt, which um, probably shouldn't be surprising given this is my fifth season and I'm yeah, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I have a really, really good established set of habits. Um, and it probably needs to be the most controlled I've ever felt because I'm trying to make improvements for the pro stage. And the whole reason, and this might dovetail into probably some questions people have related to reverse dieting and recovery dieting. Um, the whole reason there's a debate between the recovery or the reverse diet approach or the just go ham approach or just do whatever you want and then you know, eventually your your intense hunger and food focus will subside once you've gained some weight is for situations like I'm in where I have, I need to, to maintain pro status. I have to compete every other year at least. So 2023, 2025. And for someone who's 40, took 19 years of training to turn pro, what do I need to do to get a pro physique? Well, not 100% sure, but it needs to be efficient, needs to be effective. And I really have to dot my I's and cross my T's. 
And if we were to have the extreme kind of uh, approach on either end of the spectrum where I'm only staying a few pounds over stage weight and increasing my carbs by five grams once a week, reducing my step count by 50, you know, every, every week and increasing my fats by one gram, you know, Hey, I would get leaner and, and be counterproductive, but it took me forever to get to the point where I actually recovered. And I tell you what, ironically, the state that bodybuilders are in when they look the most muscular, they're also the most counterproductive state they can be in for building muscle. Can't sleep, one eighth the rate of testosterone levels, red S party, overreaching party. So you can't do that where you're just delaying the point at which you're making gains. And also maybe just regaining tissue at best. But on the other end of the spectrum, you don't want to come out the gates too broad, too fast. You might recover as fast as possible, but if you look up and you're 20 kilos over stage weight, where do you go? You don't have any runway to be in the surplus before you need to start cutting, or you have to start a contest prep really early. So you lose time to be in an efficient, effective gaining phase by being on either end of the spectrum. So I'm, I think I'm doing a good job, maybe erring on the side of being perhaps a little too cautious. Uh, this morning I was, so for the, for, for those listening, I'm two and a half, uh, two and a half weeks post worlds. And my body weight this morning was like 81.6. And I was probably 79.5 on stage and maybe 79 ish something that morning. So I'm only five, six pounds up from, from stage weight. Realistically, only half of that's probably body fat, but that those were an important few pounds of body fat gained. And, um, Sleep hasn't fully returned. Training performance is up. Uh, food focus is still there, but not nearly as bad. Um, I feel pretty much normal besides those things. Like I'm just far too interested in how strawberries taste. Um, I'm only sleeping four to five hours in a row. Then I can fall back asleep, but my sleep quality could be better. And um, yeah, so it's tough to know. I was mentioning off camera. Um, is it the time spent out of a deficit and eating enough? Is it the actual energy availability, irrespective of body fat, where I need to be consuming enough relative to my expenditure, relative to my lean body mass? Or is it the body fat percentage? And the answer is almost certainly all three, but I don't know which one's the most dominant variable. The one thing I have observed in myself on the way down, at least when I'm dieting, is that energy availability has an acute effect on my sleep quality but it's more notable when I'm leaner. So the thing right now that makes me think maybe I'm being too conservative is that my sleep is still a little bit disrupted. And I do think if I put on some body fat, maybe a little bit faster, I'd be getting higher quality sleep earlier with the amount of calories that I'm on. So I may need to just like bump my surplus up for a week, get to like 82 instead of 81 mid, another pound of fat, and then see if, you know, the high 2000 calories with steps around six to eight K per day are sufficient for me to sleep well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird spot to be in where, um, yeah, pe people might've glossed over your comment about strawberries, but when you're like dieting pretty hard, there was a time where I convinced myself like completely honestly, that PB2 tasted exactly like regular peanut butter. And I really believed it. And then, you know, you get into an off season things kind of go back to normal. You say, oh, well, no, these, these are not, these are not even in the same conversation. They're fundamentally different things. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, it, it's really tough to kind of, uh, remind yourself, like, what did I feel like when I was actually sleeping super well? You know, you kind of lose, lose sight of that. And, and it, it's kind of hard to assess. Am I really back yet? Am I not back yet? Mm. 
Um, but yeah, it's really complicated. And like you said, it's, is it time spent eating? Is it, uh, not literally, but you know, time spent out of the deficit? Is it short-term energy availability? Is it body fat? And if you're talking about endurance athletes, you can even throw a fourth ring, fourth thing in there, uh, which yeah. is just the total amount of training. So like Anthony Hackney's done some really cool stuff, uh, looking at testosterone reductions in male endurance athletes who are not really in a state of low energy availability. They yeah. just do a ton of mileage. And for whatever reason, their, their testosterone starts to drop. They start to have some of those kind of, uh, endocrinological kind of endocrinology signature kind of features of something that looks like a very lightish form of red S it's, it, it's really fascinating. So there's all these different things in the mix and, and, uh, I don't know, I, I'm hopeful that, uh, in the next couple of years, we're going to start to untangle, uh, some of those to the extent that we can, but it's going to be, it's going to be a tricky thing to untangle there. Um, but how, sure. what do you say we jump into some questions here? We got some good ones. Let's do it, man. Lead the way. All right, so the first one here is from Jeff, and the question is, is there less focus on periodization these days for non-competitive powerlifting or bodybuilding trainees, apart from maintaining interest, of course? Um, so I can go ahead and take a, a quick stab at this and then let you take over. I think you probably have stronger feelings about this than I do. I, I usually stay pretty squarely in the nutrition department. I, I don't really venture out into the training department of mass very often, but you know, I've, I've been coaching for many, many years now. And so these questions come up in practice. Um, you know, when I'm working with somebody who their, ba their goal is to get generally stronger, but not compete in a powerlifting meet, or, you know, their goal is to put on some muscle, they have a physique related goal. I usually don't spend too much time worrying about the kind of classic um, models of periodization and, and charting out these really elaborate, you know, nine and, and 12 month macro cycles and all that stuff. You know, my view of periodization when you get into where it came from is, it, you know, it comes from athletes who are training around a competitive window, uh, kind of an annual training and competition calendar. And usually it's discussed more in sports where there are kind of competing demands, kind of competing physiological adaptations you're trying to make at different times of the year. So like one of the classic examples is like an American football team where you have a defined off season, you've got a defined competitive season during the off season might be a good time to build up some muscle, focus on a little bit more hypertrophy work. You can spend some more time in the gym um, and, and really emphasize that maybe put in some strength. And, you know, once you get into the season, one of the challenges there is you have very limited time to dedicate and limited recovery resources. You cannot be beating yourself up in the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then having a, a college football game Saturday morning. It's not going to work. Uh, so then you have to say, okay, how do we kind of throughout the course of the year kind of allocate when we're going to focus on more building muscle, building strength, focusing on power and explosiveness, and then how are we going to adapt our training during the, the competitive season so that we're not beating ourselves up in the gym, but we're still maintaining a lot of those adaptations? So for most of the folks I work with, uh, general population, folks with physique goals, we really don't worry too much about periodization. We, we worry about programming. We worry about changing training variables in a sensible way to achieve whatever goal we're trying to achieve. Um, but, but there's a big difference between 
programming and periodization. You know, programming is inevitable. You are going to have to change variables. And sometimes that is to keep things interesting. Sometimes it is to uh, kind of introduce a little bit of novelty for adaptation purposes. Sometimes it's because what we're doing right now isn't working as well as we think it should, and we're going to try something new. So I do all sorts of programming, but really not a lot of periodization. Um, when it comes to um, where I might do something resembling periodization in a more formal sense, it'd probably be someone who is more of a power lifter than a bodybuilder. And it'd probably be someone who uh, is is really, really, really high level, you know, where they are a, an extremely advanced uh, competitor. Uh, Helms, what do you think? I like I agree with everything you said. And um, there's actually a pretty cool paper by AUT alumni did his master's here. Good friend of mine, Keiichi, uh, last name Anya Dyke Dames, did this under the supervision of John Kiley, who's written some very, I would say, thought-provoking pieces on periodization in the last decade. The first time I, I came across his work was 2012 and really challenged some of, some of I, I would say there's far less consensus in the periodization literature than sometimes the literature makes it seem. Yeah. I think some of the people who write about it tend to have narrower definitions and act as though that is, is a strong level of consensus. Um, so, like, you know, I'm not throwing shade, but if you were to read a paper by Mike Stone, you get a very specific definition of what periodization is, and it's stated as though there's consensus. But when you actually talk to coaches and you get out in the field, that's a much more liberal terminology. And this, uh, anyway... Paper by Danes is titled Coach's Perception of Common Planning Concepts Within Training Theory International Survey. And one key finding of this survey of coaches was that the majority of coaches do describe their planning approach as training periodization, 71%. Um, but I would say many of them did not do things which were within those narrow confines of what would be defined as periodization. So for example, only a minority, a one-third of them, uh, used fixed timelines to achieve specific physical adaptations. Yeah. Uh, and only 37%, slightly more than a third, felt that they had to be performed in a sequential order, right? Um, and there was only 10% uh, agreed that training targets would need to remain fixed over a training period. So not that those are all necessarily tenets of traditional periodization, but absolutely kind of the sequential order over periods and looking at it from a long-term perspective, that is in quote-unquote big periodization kind of a traditional model. I think some of this is very sports-specific, and when you talk to coaches who don't really, like they look at periodization terminology and they go, yeah, that sort of makes sense that I'd want to get size before I try to get big and you know, force production is going to help power production because, you know, physics. But they don't necessarily feel like they can follow some of the models as put forward because they don't really meet demands of the cyclical nature of their, their sport. So for example, in powerlifting, ironically, power is not really a target outcome. So you typically just see people shifting between more volume and more intensity. So, I, or even more specifically, like I build hypertrophy and work capacity, then I build specific strength and I recover and I taper. And I would argue that is periodization but it is typically back calculated from a competition date, kind of like you're saying. And when you look at original periodization theory, talking Matt, Matt Vev, it was kind of based upon the observations of what worked for athletes and they were working back. 
And uh, there's, there's a key point from this paper by uh, Anya Dyke Danes. And they said that rather than periodization, many coaches' practices seem to align with what can be considered planning best practice based upon the levels of uncertainty in the training process. And I think ultimately that's what you're doing as a good coach who understands basic training principles is you're working back from an end goal and then thinking what's the best way to get there. And then you're maintaining a level of flexibility and not knowing what's going to happen in training. And like you said, you're going to need to adjust training variables. And in my mind, you know, my whole angle of, of research is that I've done in strength conditioning is auto-regulation. And that's the idea that within a planned, you could argue periodized context, the programming choices you might make, which are basically defined as things that occur on the um, microcycle and maybe mesocycle level, um, those should be adjusted based upon feedback, real world outcomes. And that still might not change the overall approach, but it could as well. You know, if something is going really well, you might not want to change it. So a mesocycle dedicated to volume might get extended, you know. But um, I would say that, yeah, for people to understand that programming is essentially the variables that you change on a session to session within a week or sometimes week to week changes. So it's at kind of the mesocycle level. And the vast majority of actual empirical data we have, just by the nature of studies primarily being between 6 to 12 weeks, you could argue is on programming. A lot of the, you know, meta-analyses on volume, intensity, rep range, load, RPE, all this stuff, most of the things that Schoenfeld's published are, are they're actually programming concepts. Um, some other things that are quite interesting, you know, you could make an evidence-based argument that periodization is not beneficial for hypertrophy. And I would say this argument is probably not as rock solid as the data makes it appear. There's a meta-analysis, maybe two meta-analysis or one meta-analysis and one systematic review comparing periodized models to non-periodized models and the impact on hypertrophy. And in the literature, what is typically described as a periodized model is whether or not the variables change week to week or even mesocycle to mesocycle, but they still have progressive overload. So for example, you're doing six RM on every single day with the lifts you're given and you increase load and it's you're training to failure. So there's overload in there probably progressive overload, but no variation in the exercise. Well, the other group might do 864, 864, 864, in daily undulating format, and then that may become 642, 642, or whatever. And just because that doesn't result in differences in hypertrophy doesn't mean we can't say that training planning with elements of periodization aren't going to benefit hypertrophy, because every study I'm aware of that implements a periodization strategy it is a periodization strategy that is designed to increase strength, and they're simply measuring hypertrophy as an outcome. So it's kind of asking the question, and I'm gonna, it's a little bit of a slippery slope and not a perfect comparison of, does uh, periodization for cycling improve swimming capacity? You know, and it's like, well, if the answer is no, that doesn't mean that periodization is useless for, for cycling. It just means that periodization for swimming may not be useful for cycling. Yeah. We don't have a lot of studies, period, on different models of hypertrophy training to therefore compare them that would be considered periodized. So at this stage, we simply know that a periodization program for strength in the short to midterm doesn't seem to be better for hypertrophy than a program with less variation where you're pushing to failure. For strength, however, within the confines of those kind of study lengths, 
we do have some data that indicates there are something to be said for some elements of periodization, like undulations and linearity. Um, both seem to be more beneficial and more specifically more beneficial for uh, individuals with uh, greater training status. Yeah. Um, and the final thing I'll say there is some of the critiques of periodization are that often those comparisons, they might have the same average load, but it's distributed differently such that the periodized group is typically lifting heavier, closer to the testing time than the group that's not. So they might be at a 6RM all the time, and the periodized group might start at a 10 and get to a 2RM. So the average load is the same, but you can make the argument that really we're just observing the effects of doing a 2RM close to when you're testing a 1RM versus a 6RM, and that's why the outcome is different. Um, but you could also argue that that's a core piece to periodization. Yeah. So anyway, there, there's this ongoing debate but I think for the most part, um, for non-competitors, you need to understand that strength, if that's your goal, is a multifaceted adaptation. It's performance. And it's dependent upon not only structural and physiological aspects of your body, but also the skill of the lift. And it is challenging sometimes, especially at higher levels, but typically not on most intermediate levels or work we'll get to, to optimize uh, hypertrophy and optimize uh, the, the skill simultaneously because of fatigue dynamics, because of exercise specificity, injury limitations, time limitations. So there's benefit to elements of periodization, even if you're a non-competitor, but it does typically occur on the programming level, maybe the mesocycle level. And then for hypertrophy, I think you can pretty much exclusively land in the realm of programming with the only deviation from that being that deloads or planned time off or planned easy sessions would I think they pretty clearly fall in the realm of periodization. Yeah. Um, so that is one element, fatigue management, if you will, that is pretty non-negotiable. So you could say that that is a periodized plan yeah. if you have any kind of approach to uh, taking easy weeks. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that I, early in my coaching career, I thought I was doing things wrong because um, I would see folks posting about these like really convoluted periodization terms and these really, really extensive, you know, here's this 12-month plan for a power lifter with all these different terms that I'd never seen. And I think uh, those that, that terminology kind of always eluded me because I think the problem was, well, not a problem, but the, the nice thing was that I kind of learned the exercise physiology and the training principles, um, the foundational principles before I was ever exposed to those kind of periodization terms that kind of got, you know, when you get into the science of periodization, it's, it's almost more of the history of periodization. It's documenting what has been done and named. And so for a minute there, I had some imposter syndrome where I would have clients say, what do you think about this type of periodization? I'm like, when was science done on that? And then I look into it. I'm like, oh, never. It's just like a thing somebody did. And then they named it afterward. And now it's a thing. So, um, like, like you said, like, when when you're talking about deloads, sometimes the things I would do as a coach, I could retroactively look and say, yeah, I guess that that was getting under the umbrella of periodization, but I was really just kind of applying basic training principles and understanding how you're going to adapt to this training. You know, like for a power lifter who's like an intermediate level power lifter, I might not name these different <clears throat> these different phases with really specific terminology that, you know, kind of got made up, to be honest. 
but I'm still going to alter your volume and your intensity in a very thoughtful way for months leading up into your into your competition. So is that periodization? In spirit, yes. Does it fall into a category of any particular type of periodization? Maybe not. You know, so I, I think that leads to a lot of confusion on the periodization conversation because um, some of the sciencey stuff feels sciencey, but isn't actually science. And it's more kind of a documentation of tradition and history, which is really fascinating. Oh man, Eric, I don't know if you've read this preprint, but it's called the myth of periodization. One of my students, uh, brought it in. We have a, a strike journal club where every two weeks at AUT, uh, in any of the students, regardless of whether they're, they're in the strength conditioning stream for their PhD or their master's, whether they're an intern from, uh, an international school and they're still an undergraduate or whether it's, you know, me or one of the actual, uh, professors or research fellows can attend. Only requirement is you're at sprints or lab and you like getting stronger. So some of them are like sports marketing students who like rock climbing. And then it's all the way to people like me, right? It's a really cool group. And, uh, one of the, we just round table, have the students present and this preprint by Steele, Fisher, Lenicky, and Buckner, right? You can imagine it's going to be critical of periodization, but those yeah. last names you've been reading this field is called the myth of periodization. I'm just going to read the abstract real quick. Cause I think you're going to relate to it a lot based upon what you just said. And I don't necessarily agree with even 60% of it. But I think they make some very good points. Here's the abstract. We present an overview of periodization, introducing and discussing its definition and historical development. We then consider the common argument that strength and hypertrophic adaptations are optimized to the application of periodization and provide alternative interpretations that we think likely reflect more parsimonious explanations than appeals to periodization quote-unquote theory. Lastly, we'll consider its structure as a myth versus as a scientific theory in the Paparian sense. So they actually go into what is the definition of a scientific theory. So there's an element of uh, philosophy of science in this, which I think is really good because most people in sports science are really not aware of uh, the philosophy of science, which I think is a weakness in our field. Anyway, lastly, we will consider its structure as a myth versus scientific theory in the Popperian sense. From our perspective and analysis, it does not feel unfair to label periodization as a myth. At the very least, it has strong elements of mythos about it, particularly in terms of its origin and development. Periodization is to take a step forward into the beginnings of a scientific theory, then consensus, then consensus specification and definition, such that it yields clearly deductive, uh, deductively testable, testable consequences should be the next point in its journey from mythical origins. Talk about the inflammatory paper, yeah. But and, and I do but, want to uh, clarify, but good know, points. Yeah, those, those are good points. And when I say, you know, like it, it's not. It, its development wasn't necessarily rooted in a scientific method. I hope people won't take that to mean that I am blanketly saying that anyone who studies periodization strategies, all their work is trash. Like when I say it's kind of like not scientific Dr. in Shadows, nature. Are you listening to this? <laughs> but see, you, you know what I mean? Though, all, you guys are taking cracks to me, but no, he just he just tore down your whole your whole PhD. Yeah, pretty cracks. much. No, but but like um, no, I agree. It, it's about like science as the act of doing studies versus periodization coming from an origin of scientific methodological development. You know what I mean? And and it really was kind of a a tradition, you know, some would say kind of a mythical tradition of we do it this way and it works, things get named, then things come along and get tested one versus another with certain limitations. But but the actual development 
um, that that kind of initial story, you know, it, it really was not science. It was in no. a classical sense, you know. No, I fully agree. It was based upon a rationalist perspective. Mm-hmm. Here's what makes sense from planning theory. And then here's what we observed in a large pool of athletes. It was not empirically derived, right? right? Yeah. Very few, th- I, I will say though, that very few things in sports science are empirically derived. Right. Because sport has existed long before it was testable in science. So some things it probably doesn't make sense to put forth a lot of energy and effort to go back to basic first principles. And and for that reason, we've borrowed a lot from physiology, you know, Hans Sale's gas pr- principle, which is a good fit, but an imperfect fit for some things we do. Um, you know, so I think... For anyone who is interested in sports science and understanding its development moving forward, they do need to be aware, even if they don't necessarily agree with some of the harshest critiques of sports science, uh, because not being aware of better statistical models, analytical techniques like you can lead to a lot of false connections between points. Not understanding what certain uh, study designs can and can't tell you, um, because some people rely a lot on a lot of observational data that they don't really realize is observational to make conclusions. Um, you know, like so many of the strong hypotheses we've had to inform training theory were based on correlational analysis, like the hormone hypothesis, right? Yeah. So these, these errors that have been repeated for literally decades at this point in sports science could be avoided if we did a better job of educating sports scientists on statistics, design, the philosophy of science, and the actual um, process by which discovery of new knowledge occurs. Like, what is a theory? I don't think most sports scientists could actually answer that question. Yeah. I'm very stupid. I took a class during my PhD, a whole semester on, um, you know, kind of philosophy of science. And it, it was like the first semester of my PhD program, which is exactly where it should be, right, in the order. And I remember while I was taking it, I thought it was the biggest waste of time because I was like this really gung-ho researcher and I knew the type of research I did and I knew what our kind of typical study design looked like. And I was like, well, if I'm in here in this classroom, I'm not in the lab doing this thing over and over and over. Um, And yeah, in hindsight, I'm just like, wow, what an idiot, you know, it's so, so short-sighted. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of programs are getting better at kind of embracing the fact that that stuff needs to be taught really well. Um, I tell you what, Holmes, it's probably time to move on to the next question here. Um, got one, one that I want to address really briefly. I basically just have like a paper recommendation for this one. Uh, but M asked if there's any research around scarcity mindsets and how they influence eating decisions, what increases the risk of a scarcity mindset? And once someone is working from that place, yeah, what, what helps to move them toward a mindset of abundance? So I don't do a lot of work in the area of psychology, um, you know, so I, I don't really know really good predictors of what nudges someone toward a scarcity type mindset or an abundance type mindset. Um, and and I, I don't really know how thorough the, the underlying theoretical work in this area is. It could be fantastic. It's, it's just not an area that I'm well versed in. But I do know, you know, my understanding of you know, what is called a scarcity mindset. It's it's a bit self-explanatory, but someone with a, a scarcity mindset 
when an opportunity comes by, they feel like it's a one in a billion and there's not another opportunity coming. Or when someone around them has some positive fortune, they kind of tend to view it as a zero-sum game. If someone has something good happen to them, I almost view it as a loss for me because I should have had that and there's only so much success or wealth or whatever it is to go around, right? So scarcity mindset is someone who's kind of always at, always under the impression that the next opportunity is going to be impossibly difficult to come by, um, that they need to kind of try to carve out a lane to somehow try to get by, basically. And an abundance mindset is the opposite of that. You know, it, it's someone who says, oh, I missed this opportunity. The next one will come around. It'll be fine. Um, you know, I had a, a financial setback here. I'll make more money. It'll be no big deal. You know, someone wins an award. Oh, that's fantastic. They earned it. Maybe I'll get it the next time, right? So there's these kind of contrasting mindsets. And I I know generally speaking, when people talk about trying to shift from one to another, always shifting from scarcity to abundance, um, just in terms of how they correlate with, um, you know, general wellness and psychological well-being. Uh, a lot of times that's going to involve some form of cognitive behavioral training. So really thinking about reframing your responses to various uh, stimuli. Uh, in some cases, it might involve st really strategically changing your environment or your context. You might find that being in a particular type of work, uh, a really high stress, low resourced position might kind of feed into these tendencies and you might need to change the, the the folks you work with or change the industry that you're in because for whatever reason, this combination of environment and context is just really reinforcing some of these negative um, thought patterns for you. Um, also, gratitude practices are usually really common when people are trying to shift um, from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. So I kind of wanted to address that and leave it in a little bin here. And then talk about an area of scarcity that I know is really well researched when it comes to eating behaviors, and that is just a, a very, a very literal issue of food scarcity. Um, mm. And so, one of the things that's really um, counterintuitive if you're not well versed and in, in kind of dug into the literature, I think it'd be very intuitive to assume that in places where food is scarce, body fat levels are low, where BMIs are low. And in reality, that's that's not always the case. Um, there, there are actually, um, you know, some environments where food scarcity is high, and obesity rates are quite high as well, uh, which on the surface is counterintuitive. But there's actually some really fascinating work on uh, food insecurity and, and food scarcity um, as actually a causative role in, in the progression and development of adiposity or obesity. So I wanted, for anyone who's interested in that particular topic, which I think is a much more straightforward interpretation versus taking a, a more general personality trait and mapping it onto food behavior, that, that can always be uh, a little bit difficult to do. But when we, when we, if we want to look at specifically um, food scarcity or food insecurity and seeing how that affects eating, eating patterns and eating behaviors, uh, there's actually some really good science in that area, and it's pretty well documented. I'm going to show something on the screen here. Um, this is probably my favorite paper on the topic. It was published recently by Bateson and Pepper. And uh, they, they really walk through start to finish. Um, they, you know, they start with, like I said, the food insecurity obesity paradox and kind of talking about how this came to be. They do a great job defining food insecurity. Um, and, and they also, I'm, I'm kind of skipping down toward the bottom of this paper. They give a great overview of 
uh, some theoretical mechanisms by which, um, you know, food insecurity could trigger psychological cues and nutritional cues that could feed into increased energy intake and reduced energy expenditure, ultimately leading to a, a response where fat stores or fat reserves are increased despite the fact that the underlying uh, causative factor there is actually food insecurity rather than, you know, this dramatic food uh, overabundance or perceived overabundance. So uh, it's a really, really fascinating paper I encourage people to dig into, but uh, this is an area where there's a lot of great research and indeed, um, as counterintuitive as it may th- as it may seem, there are both behavioral and f- potentially physiological factors that might explain why food insecurity or periodic food scarcity might actually drive obesity rather than leanness. Uh, Helms, I don't know if you have any two cents to add in on that one. I really don't. I think um, my people sometimes classify me as a nutrition or training guy or both, but in reality, I'm a physique and strength sports science guy. So yeah. if you want to ask me what do I know about psychology and you go generally, not much, but if you say, hey, what do you know about subclinical eating disorders, uh, body image issues, and sports-specific uh, psychology and coaching psychology, and what do you know about weight class restricted as well as uh, energy restricted sport nutrition, I'm all over it. Yeah. But I, was gonna say, I would say I, I'm, I'm a non-expert in both of these kind of angles you took, so I was really interested listening to what you had to say. Yeah, so um, I'll send you that paper. It, it's a it's a doozy. It's really good. Um, I was going to say at first you were selling yourself short there because you've contributed to some really nice papers on psychology and eating behavior, but like you said, it was very specific to you know the the applications that are are kind of within your wheelhouse. But I think that does actually lead into the next question, which is pretty good here. Um, a really nice little segue. So we had a, cr- a question from Chris. The question was, can you discuss behavior change tools and educational interventions for improving nutritional knowledge and dietary intake of athletes? So this kind of feeds into, um, you know, helping athletes or clients become more knowledgeable about nutrition um, and what kind of behavior change tools, strategies, or theories have been uh, particularly helpful for you or, or look particularly compelling based on the literature. Yeah, I think for the the literature based behavior change stuff, I think you've you've contributed some awesome content to uh, to mass, and I think it it is much broader than how does it apply to nutrition. So, for example, one of the, my favorite theoretical models, which you wrote about, is the COM B model. So, competence, opportunity, motivation equals behavior change or leads to behavior change, and it's so intuitive it. Uh, it gives more robustness to our understanding of uh, SDT, self-determination theory, as an underlying feature that is cross-cultural um, for human motivation and what results in humans feeling fulfilled and sticking with things and achieving uh, any any goal, really. So, uh, really brief overview, self-determination theory, autonomy, feeling like you're in charge of your own destiny, or at least your, your goals are your goals, I guess, from a sports context. Um, relatedness, uh, that you are understood, at least in, within your community and by your peer group, and that you have the ability to, to relate to people in it. And then competence, which can feel similar to autonomy, but it has more to do with uh, are you improving and can you improve? Do you feel like you have self-efficacy in what you're doing? And obviously, 
you could think of autonomy and competence is different as if you were a really, really good athlete, but you didn't get to choose what competitions you did when you competed or how you trained. Um, I think, uh, if anyone's ever read about Andre Agassi hated, uh, ha- hated tennis, but was really, really good at it and was forced to do it yeah. whole life kind of thing. So anyway, Com B fits into that quite nicely because SDT is a theory of human motivation and Com B, the M is that you need to have that motivational component to result in behavior change. And the other things that also have to do more with maybe environmental factors, um, the opportunity, and then the competence also kind of overlaps with SDT. So when you look at some of the outcomes and fulfillment and things that relate to burnout and even some studies on actual performance, there do seem to be at least correlational observational data for the SDT model, which is overlaps so much with Combi that I feel pretty confident. And I think you as a coach can definitely look and take the framing of Combi and apply it to nutrition, right? So sometimes the there's opportunity issues, right? Um, they have a busy schedule. Uh, they may not necessarily have access to certain foods. Uh, they may not have the resources. They may have a lower uh, income level than in their area, which would allow them to buy the fruits and vegetables and all that things. And that is going to interact with their competence. Do they have cooking skills? Do they know about these things? Um, and then do they actually know? What is their nutritional literacy level? One thing that I've harped on a lot is that while it feels simplistic to us in the evidence-based community, it is arguably more flexible than like a strict meal plan-based approach. Um, it is also harder to implement a, if it fits your macros approach, if you don't have a basic level of nutritional literacy, uh, you give somebody three numbers and they don't even necessarily know what the function of protein, carbs, and fats are, or the food sources they come from. Yeah. That's easier on you. Yes. It gives them more flexibility, but it might just result in a, uh, in an athlete who is not quite uh, prepared for that level of, uh, freedom, if you will. Yeah. And they would be like, oh, can you just tell me what to eat? Uh, the problem with that, though, is that just telling someone what to eat doesn't educate them. So a blended approach I find is really good is first you need to assess what is the nutritional literacy of your athlete? What do they know? Are they someone who is still at the stage where they think, uh, you know, a good protein source is nuts, right? And that, you know, and protein is a good source of energy, you know, things like that. Like some of the things you'll hear in the, the general population rather than understanding the roles of carbohydrates, fat protein and also understand that we don't eat macros we eat foods so what does their diet look like holistically and then as a coach you may not be used to dealing with people who have these varying levels of nutritional literacy if you're kind of well entrenched in the evidence-based community and when you get one of these clients who maybe just got a referral to go to you from some person in person and has not been in kind of the evidence-based stream and you're one of the many coaches as an option you're actually quite unequipped to help them so when someone comes to you, you may not know what to do. And I think some, some real basic things that I suggest coaches to do is have a conversation with them live, see what their levels are at. And while we focus on kind of if it's your macros as a prescriptive tool, hit these targets, I think tracking your food does not have to mean tracking it with intention to modify it. So the first steps that I really like for people where they kind of put their toe in the water of quote unquote flexible dieting is just for them to start looking at food labels, recording what they eat, weighing foods when they're home, but not modifying their behaviors. This, of course, will modify their behavior. Just kind of watching that pot boil makes it seem like it takes longer, right? 
So you might not decide to eat that donut at work if you have to note it down. Even if you haven't been told by your coach that it's a quote-unquote bad food or you shouldn't be eating it or you need to eat fewer calories. But just observing your own behaviors and not just writing down the calories and macros, but writing those down as well. But the food you eat, when you eat them, the environment you eat them in, um, and noting whether you have a consistent structure or you don't, uh, and then kind of looking at the food you like to eat, and then what does that result in in terms of nutrients? That's the first step. Um, and just the, the act of eating your foods, being mindful of it, and then converting those into some numbers, but also getting this qualitative information around the structure and timing and environment which you eat gives the athlete and the coach a ton of really useful information. And then at that point, the coach can come in and say, okay, now I'm going to educate you about the things you've seen. You've learned which foods just by the, this process are high in protein, high in calories, low in fat, high in carbs. And now let me tell you why maybe we want to adjust our diet towards that because of the role of carbs, fat, protein, and energy. And then maybe the, the health benefits of certain classes of foods, digestive benefits, uh, you know, satiety-inducing benefits, or maybe, you know, things are too satiating because you're eating a little too much like a health nut, but you don't really know what you need for your sport. It could be chronic state of low energy availability, just as much as you could be overeating. And then we go, all right, well, how do we create some structure? How do we leverage the things you like, leverage your environment, uh, deal with the limitations around you? And I want to create uh, a couple sample, three or four sample meal plans to hit a certain range of targets. And I'm not going to do that for you as a coach. But what I am going to do is we're going to jump on this call. I'm going to share my screen. We're going to create this spreadsheet. And I want you to write out the first meal plan for yourself. And I can't tell you how useful that process is where the athlete themselves is going, okay, well, all right, at breakfast, I normally have like a three egg omelet. What if I had um, maybe two eggs and uh, a, bit, a bit of smoked salmon? Or if I had, okay, but maybe I mix in some egg whites or I um, mean, my carbs are really low at breakfast. Okay, what if I did a scoop of whey in my oatmeal? You know, and just them going through that process of, oh, wow, like my Greek yogurt, that's really high in fat. Maybe I need to switch to strained, low-fat Greek yogurt, like Faye, you know? Or, man, I really do a lot of snacking at night, but I eat very little at breakfast and lunch. I wonder if I would if I wasn't hungry all day. But I'm also, oh, no, but I go to work, so I need to eat something quick and easy. All right, well, what options do I have that are easy to transport that I can cook in a microwave that are also meeting my needs? These are just examples, but the simple act of the athlete going through that and creating a meal plan and then trying it out and seeing if it does or doesn't fit the nutrient guidelines and also does it or does or does not work for the structure of their life. You literally can't do that as a coach, especially an online coach, because you're not with them. And trying to is more likely setting up your athlete for failure, or at the very least, just giving them a plan that's harder to follow than necessary. And that organic process of collaboration that is athlete led, but of course still coach mentored can be incredibly helpful for someone who doesn't have that level of nutritional knowledge, literacy, or flexibility. And that's a very different approach you take to someone who has all this knowledge, but is simply looking to optimize it and is coming to you. And you point out, well, you know, I think we could probably get a few more micronutrients in your diet. Your fiber is a little low. And I also think your protein distribution can be modified. And, and maybe just maybe based upon the time of day you train, we should have a scoop away here, you know? Yeah. And I think most evidence-based coaches are expecting to have the latter job and they're quite good at that. And honestly, that's an easy job, no offense. Um, but 
the the former is something that really requires some experience and sounds quite tedious but if you get good at it it can be quite rewarding and uh, it's not actually as hard as you think because most people who don't have nutrition literacy have very predictable issues that have similar solutions they just or at least the process of solving it is the same while the individual look of it is quite different and with almost everybody it is log without an intention to track without an intention to change self-guided uh nutritional plan adjust and then they're good to go yeah yeah i think it's uh it's, it's really interesting to note like when i saw this question i started looking at some of the you know every month we go through a huge list of papers that we might review in the mass research review and I've noticed over over the last several months, there have been a couple where they do a nutrition intervention for just educating athletes or just educating folks on nutrition. And I went back and looked through some of those papers. And I, I think that literature paints a pretty clear picture, which is that educational informa- um, interventions for nutrition are good, but they are very far from sufficient. You know, so... Um, for the the example of athletes, if you go and talk to a, a team sport athlete, even at like a pretty good Division One college in the United States, they get a tremendous amount of misinformation directed toward them about nutrition. You know, where do they get it? The same place every 20-year-old gets their nutrition information. You know, they're getting it on TikTok and, and whatever. And uh, no disrespect to TikTok, but, you know, there, there's there's a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah. Um, I know you've been working hard on your dancing and everything, but you know there's so much misinformation out there that athletes are exposed to. And of course, it's great to correct that and to give a better foundation for understanding nutrition, but giving someone more knowledge or information about nutrition does not change behavior. And so there, there are all these studies out there where they say, hey, we, we did this educational intervention, and at the end of it, people knew more about nutrition. And also, they didn't change their their dietary habits that they didn't say they intended to either. Um, so, so it's really funny to see that discrepancy. And I think a lot of folks will see that those types of papers and say, "Okay, so nutritional inter- interventions are a waste of time. I'll focus on the behavior stuff as if it's a dichotomy." But I actually think that the nutrition stuff, establishing that baseline in the manner that you just kind of walked us through not only is it complementary to the behavior change stuff, but it's actually like a pretty necessary prerequisite. You know, so for example, when we talk about these really robust behavior change models that that involve things like uh, competence or, you know, just having the skill set necessary to implement a diet and to be able to roll with the punches and make a modification on the fly, you really are going to struggle to build up any sense of competence or self-efficacy if you don't have that underlying nutrition knowledge. Um, and, and I think what's really interesting is I want to assume the best of all nutrition coaches, but there's a lot of coaches out there. Some are inevitably going to be better than others. I think that some folks fail to nurture that independence and do more of the education and the hands-on training that you talked about I think that they are a little bit hesitant to nurture that independence because they really want to nurture dependence. You know, I think a lot of coaches have the incorrect concern, in my opinion, that their business, their livelihood is going to be hurt if they give too much of the goods away and basically make themselves redundant. You know, if if my client can do all this stuff on their own without me, then what am I here for, right? But I think... uh, 
that that's a very short-sighted perspective in nutrition coaching. And over the years, I think what you'll find is that um, the more that you're able to help clients along the way and teach them and help them grow in their you know nutrition or fitness journey, um, the better results they're going to get, the more that they are going to enjoy the process. And if anything, I've kind of found the opposite to be true. When I talk to like really good nutrition coaches and fitness coaches, they often reach the point where they sit down with the client and say, I think I've given you all I've got here and I'm happy to keep chatting with you every every couple of weeks uh, for as long as you'd like. But I, just so you know, I, I think, you know, I've, I've kind of outstayed my utility here. I think you're ready to go do this on your own. Um, so it, it's really funny to see where a lot of coaches think their their clients are going to learn a couple of little tricks and say, all right, I got the good stuff. I'm out. In reality, the more you give, the more you nurture that growth and education, the more you'll, you'll see that your clients want to stick around long after it's even rec- like advisable. And you'll actually have to sit down with them and say, I just don't think this is a good use of your, your time and money right now. Like, I, I don't know if I'm really doing much for you here. And you know, what you do with that information is up to you. But uh, yeah, it, it does tend to actually work out completely the opposite of what a, what a lot of coaches expect there. Um, now, when I saw this question, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, these educational interventions. I, I, I was hoping I could give some kind of guidance about where to begin with those. But unfortunately, I don't know if there's a good one size fits all way to approach that. Um, I think basic teaching principles apply, but ultimately the context of who you're working with is going to dictate the proper uh, nutrition kind of educational intervention that you want to start with. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of generalizable, like here's a good nutrition educational intervention to start with. I mean, there's a a bunch of them out there, but it's going to vary from, from context to context based on what that individual needs. Um, But, but I think, uh, the important thing to keep in mind is make sure you tailor it to the individual. Don't throw way too much at somebody who only needs the basics right now. They will have an entire lifetime to learn all the detailed stuff. Um, and if someone really wants the more advanced stuff, don't dumb it down. You know, meet them where they're at. And, and what you can do is lean into that and really embrace that um, that competence that they already have and, and get them really excited about learning more and getting into the details. So really important to tailor that to where the individual's at and what their goals are. But uh, fortunately, the behavior change models, I think, are quite uh, generalizable. Uh, and Helms, you you went over the big ones. And actually, <clears throat> as you were talking about them, I was putting them up on the screen. That's a little bonus for anyone who's watching this on YouTube instead of the podcast. But I had little little figures up there for the COM-B model of behavior change, self-determination theory, um, one other or two other models that I wanted to bring attention to, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put them up there while I'm at it. One is the trans theoretical model, also known as the stages of change model in, in some circles. Mm-hmm. And this is something to keep in mind on the front end when you're kind of talking with a potential client about, you know, hey, maybe I'm going to work with this person. Or if you're looking at your own goals and doing some kind of self-assessment, the trans theoretical model basically or organizes or categorizes an individual based on how ready they are to embark on a particular type of change or intervention. So there's the pre-contemplation stage, which basically is, you know, square one or or square zero. There's really not much of an awareness that something needs to change. There's not really an intention to change any particular behavior. Uh, 
contemplation is where someone is aware that some behavior change would be advisable and they might start planning to change that behavior, but they've not really committed to a very specific plan. The preparation stage is next. That's where someone uh, begins planning to actually make a specific behavior change and they're starting to really become committed to following through on that. After that is the action stage where they've actually started implementing that behavior modification in order to change their behavior long term. And then maintenance is where someone has changed that behavior, is now uh, kind of maintaining that and, and trying to prevent any you know relapses or kind of falling back into old habits. Now, that's a beautiful picture with uh, arrows that only go one direction, but of course that's not how it works in real life. For any particular behavior, you're going to be bouncing all around these stages at various points in your life. But it is a helpful model when you're sitting down with someone. Every now and then, you know, you might have someone, if you're a coach who wants to work with you and you start talking to them and you say, you know what, um, with all due, you know, all you say it very kindly, but you say, you know, I, I don't know if we're really quite ready to make these sweeping changes that we're talking about in terms of your goals. And you might talk through them and talk about, you know, where, where you think they are in terms of these stages of change and perhaps what it might take to get to a more advisable stage of change before making really broad, uh, ambitious attempts to change behavior. It doesn't mean you can't help them in any way, but it might mean that you want to start way smaller than, you know, diving right into the deep end and kind of helping get someone to that action stage before you give them a really elaborate plan that's going to kind of overwhelm them. The other thing I wanted to mention is the concept of a goal hierarchy. And if you're watching on YouTube, I've got one up on the screen here. Um, I think with goal setting, there's a lot of, um, you know, smart goals got way more popular than they should have um, in the health and fitness space. They're, they're really more, they, they were designed actually for kind of like business applications, like for managers to kind of help keep their teams on task and things like that with workplace objectives. Um, and, Fun you know, fact there. Do you know what the A actually stood for in the original smart goal model? Is it assignable? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's literally supposed to be delegated by a manager to a peon. Yeah. So it, it's really not something that you would even vaguely expect to generalize well to a self-initiated health behavior that's going to be uh, a you know part of your life you know in the long term. It, it's a very, very different context for goal setting. So goal hierarchies, um, and the, there's an example up there on the screen right now, they involve, and there's some really good psychology research on these hierarchies, they involve setting superordinate, intermediate, and subordinate goals. And most people, when they set a SMART goal, they're basically setting a subordinate goal when you look at it. So like, for example, I'm going to do 40 push-ups on Wednesday afternoons, right? There, there's a time component, it's very specific. Um and that's fine, but when you start to dig into the research on goal hierarchies, you see why some of those SMART goals kind of fizzle out in the long term. And they're, they're basically, in many cases, they're unmoored, they're untethered, just kind of these random sets of tasks floating around without any really clear organization to them. And they're not really pinned to anything that's built to last, right? And so that's where something like a superordinate goal is. A superordinate goal really reflects your ideal view of, of what yourself should be. You know, it, it's more of a, a statement of what you value and what you prioritize in your life. And so that's not something that's going to be changing probably every eight weeks, right? Um, it will change at some points in your life, but a superordinate goal is this broad, overarching, almost a value statement 
that uh, that that really is wrapped up in identity and is is a heavy anchor to to really tether a set of goals to. And so you would start with a superordinate goal that kind of sets the general vision for what your ideal version of yourself is. Then you set intermediate goals to kind of help you achieve that. Like, you know, I want to work on my my physical fitness. I want to get enough sleep. I want to work on stress management, right? So these are a little bit more vague. And then these more smart type goals, these subordinate goals, and I'm using smart kind of vaguely, you know, just these kind of very time-specific, highly specific tasks that we're putting together. These are the kind of day-to-day little goals that, that may change around a little bit if they're not really serving the, uh, the intermediate goal they're supposed to serve. Um, but, but it's helping us kind of organize where this all fits in rather than just having like a random checklist of hard things to do every day. Um, I think sitting down with a client or sitting down yourself and working through a goal hierarchy can be a really powerful thing that can uh, not just initiate behavior change or help you initiate behavior change, but help you sustain that behavior change after the exciting first few weeks are, are over. And now you're like, oh, so this is my life now. At a certain point, you're going to have to say, why did I do this again? And if you don't have a pretty good reason, it's very easy to fall back into old habits. And the superordinate goal is usually that pretty good reason. Um, all right. So Helms, I, I've got one more here. Do you the- mind? There are so many good things you said there and some things I want to stick with a little bit. Sure. If, yeah. if you're cool with that. I don't want to push this too far over because obviously we could talk about this forever, you and I. But um, all that's amazing. And I think going back to what you were saying about how some coaches have that actually connects back to an abundance mindset. They don't have an abundance mindset, right? Where they're they're thinking, I need a dependent client. Um, it's not always even necessarily that. It's they don't understand the difference between the actual end advice they give, the outcome, if you will, of, of what their advice is, and the process of how they got there and where their real value is. And also the difference between experiential learning and knowledge versus empirical knowledge. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, I'm always shaking my head when I see coaches who, who don't want to give out like the plan that they gave to a client um, because they think it's the plan that's magic. And the plan may be very effective for that person, but your value as a coach is actually how you helped that person get through the planning process to solve the problem with that being the answer. So it's not the answer that is useful or it's not where your value lies. It's in the critical thinking and collaborative process by which you got to that answer. It's your thought processes as a coach, not the answers you come to that define your value. That's why I have no problem selling something like the muscle and strength pyramids, because I know that my value is that I was able to come up with a hierarchical system of the muscle and strength pyramids, not the fact that it, I, I go with 1.6 grams per kg is the, the the starting protein recommendation in level two. Um, it's just an example. The other thing I think that uh, coaches struggle with, you know, they kind of expect and why the research shows that just educating people doesn't change behavior is the disconnect between experiential knowledge and experiential learning and uh, empirical knowledge. Knowing what the gram per kilogram of protein intake is can in some cases change behavior if someone is misinformed. But what they really need to know is what do I do on a day-to-day basis? What skills, like all the stuff that I talked about before, the process of teaching an athlete, um, 
how to modify their nutrition in the real world, that is not based upon empirical knowledge, right? That is them actually needing to go through the experiential learning process. So I think once a coach understands the difference between those two types of learning and skill sets, that it is the application of this stuff that is quite different. It's, it's not even like which one's better, like experience versus science. No, it's like you need to understand how to apply these concepts in the real world. And that is experiential knowledge. And if you're not doing that as a coach, you might as well be a walking textbook. You're like chat GPT with, with the fitness part of Wikipedia walking around. So those two things are really important for coaches to understand. It is your thinking process rather than the outcomes that that leads to where your value lies. And therefore you can never expire and you never have to worry about putting all your quote unquote secrets out there. And then two, there is a very, very distinct difference between empirical knowledge and experiential knowledge and learning. And once you understand the difference, a lot of these struggles you have where, damn it, I told them the evidence-based answer. Here's the calorie intake that's appropriate. Here's the protein intake that's appropriate. And that's not changing behavior. Maybe it's because they just need your mentorship to help them put it into practice. So those are the only two things I wanted to add because I thought everything else you said was amazing. So let's go on. Yeah, no, those are, those are good points. And like you said, it's your value as a coach is your thought process and also just the way you interact with your clients. Like, I mean, when, when we think about a coach in any sport, you know, it, it's not just that they have the perfect X's and O's. Sometimes there are people who have a great feel for the game. They're a great motivator. They can get the most out of the people on their team. And I think in fitness coaching, there's a, a very direct analogy there where it's, there are some times where a, a client links up with a coach and it brings the best out of them because of the way they communicate and the way that they do their business. So yeah. Very good points. Uh, I'm going to dive into the chat here. Uh, Matt mentioned that I'm looking very cozy. Uh, that is what COVID will do for you. You'll get very cozy very quickly. Uh, I appreciate the well wishes in the live chat. Re very much appreciate. I'm feeling way better than last week. Voice isn't quite where I like it to be, not quite up to broadcasting standards, but but we're getting there. Uh, Trex Army, Trex Nation, and the Trex Hive are checking in. The Trex Hive is actually new. I, I like that a lot. Um I'd mind. Absolutely. Um, got someone saying hello from Vietnam. This is a global event. Appreciate it there, Jay. Uh, we do have a couple questions that I think we can address relatively uh, concisely because there is one more in the outline I want to get to. But Alex had a question here. I've read muscle protein synthesis is elevated for about 48, 72 hours after a workout. Do you see any benefit in training a muscle group before that time period? Or would you ideally train a muscle group every two to three days based on muscle protein synthesis? Yeah, I think ultimately we need to understand muscle protein synthesis as a proxy that should not be used to inform directly training practice. If you wanted to know what's the ideal frequency of training to result in hypertrophy, you've actually just answered your own question. We've got our independent and dependent variable. You want to look at studies that manipulate training frequency and perhaps volume, depending upon what your question is. And then you want to look at the outcome of hypertrophy. And there are actually several good meta-analyses on this that are out there. And a lot of them have been published in the last few years, and they largely have seen that various frequencies can be useful. There's one, I think, literally titled, How Many Times Should a Muscle Be Trained Per Week to Optimize Hypertrophy, or something like that. Yeah, I'm actually going to type that up as I'm as I'm looking, and I want to say it's by 
this is always an easy guess, Schoenfeld and Gurdjieff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, where they look at the effect of different frequencies of training for hypertrophy. And while they did find an initial effect of higher frequencies resulting in greater hypertrophy, they found when they did a sub-analysis, when they looked at volume-equated studies, that effect went away, indicating that it is the act of training more frequently resulting in higher volumes being completed that is probably the thing doing it. So it seems, though, that it is not just the amount of, the number of times you train, but the, the, the dosage of the stimulus. So another way to think about how this relates to your question of MPS is there's probably going to be a more robust or smaller MPS response based on the dose. And another thing to consider is that MPS does not just reflect the growth response in creating new structural proteins, but also the proteins that are being created to repair muscle, um, as we've seen, which is one of the confounding things that makes NPS uh, at best a proxy measure for, for hypertrophy. So NPS, um, Trexler's talked about this before, we've written about it in mass. There are surprising disconnects and very weak correlations between things like amino acid appearance, both in blood uh, and actual MPS response, and then even another step, the MPS response and actual hypertrophy. Um, then you have to jump through a few hoops to even get decent strength correlations, like estimate the amount that would be contributing to damage, go for a longer time period, and only do it in trained lifters, and then you see a decent correlation between MPS and, and hypertrophy. So in much the same way that... Um, you know, something like EMG is at best a proxy uh, and doesn't tell you all the other things that can impact hypertrophy. I think we should be looking at NPS uh, as a proxy. These are probably generally true statements about the amino acid profiles of foods and their impact and isolation on how they're going to affect acute response. But hypertrophy takes weeks, if not months sometimes. So a 14-hour study simply is going to miss too many variables. So the answer to your question is, Various frequencies can work um, and be effective. And actually, the title of that study, I was looking it up, how many times per week should a muscle be trained to maximize muscle hypertrophy? A systematic review of meta-analysis of studies examining the effects of resistance training frequency. And I was two-thirds right. Schoenfeld, Gurdjieff, and the final author, our main man, James Krieger. All good people. All very, do very good work. Published in 2019, and this has also been shown in strength via multiple meta-analyses is that it seems to have more to do with the volume accumulated rather than the frequency you train. And that does make intuitive sense. You can train less frequently and do higher volumes, and then you need more recovery time. Or you can distribute that volume across multiple days, not create as much recovery sink, recover faster, and train more frequently. And I find that ideal approach to this varies pretty substantially by individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Great answer. I totally agree. Um, you know, it's it's very tempting to want to look at these protein synthesis timelines and translate that right into dietary practices or training practices. But um, the more you dig into the protein synthesis data, the more you say, eh, it's uh, it's quite a stretch to to do that. Um, a very quick one for you here: uh, Should you train if you're still sore, um, or is that going to be bad for for muscle growth? What level of soreness uh, would would convince you to actually kind of pull some levers with auto-regulation and change some things? That's a great question. So the interesting thing about soreness is it is not necessarily fully connected to the time course of muscle damage. That sounds weird, right? 
yeah. because we actually use soreness as a proxy for muscle damage. But the time point, so, okay, take a step back. The only way to actually empirically measure muscle damage is by actually looking at biopsies under the microscope and measuring Z-line streaming. That's the actual disruption to the sarcomere. That's the actual presence of muscle damage. That's hard to do. That takes some pretty time-intensive and uh, participant-intensive measures. So most time-series studies on muscle damage and investing in the repeated bout effect look at indirect markers of muscle damage. So CK, creatine kinase, um, actual performance. So how long does it take to make the performance go down and when does it come back up? The perception of DOMS, which can be measured various different ways, just how sore do you feel, Likert scale, literally nothing. Uh, or pressure algometry, where we push on a muscle with a given known pressure device that has a standardized levels of pressure, and then you point on a scale where it is. Um, That's scientific, scientific terms for saying we poke you and ask you how bad did that hurt. But we know how hard we poked you. Correct. And, and you're pointing on a line with little dashes on it so that we know how hard you said it was. Yeah. But basically, yes. Yeah. Um, another one is an isometric hold in a squat position. You know, after doing squats, maybe a little more specificity. Um, and then there are other markers as well, other performance proxies. So velocity return, like basically, are you ready to perform? You know, have you recovered that metric? And then, you know, biochemical markers like CK and other potential markers of muscle damage. Um, and then perceptions of it. Now, the interesting thing is that the time course of when soreness is highest and when performance is lowest is a bit disconnected. And sometimes they actually correlate so that when you're sore, your performance is actually on the upswing. And this is probably because soreness is not just related to the damage itself, but the repair of the damage and the inflammation related to that process. Because if you think about it, delayed onset muscle soreness indicates that it is happening after the initial event which caused the damage. Now, damage is also complex. It's thought to occur from two different main things. One is the actual metabolic byproducts of contraction, but the other is actual structural damage. Uh, we have shown that eccentric contractions cause more damage than concentric, but if you do enough concentric volume, even if you remove the eccentric, some damage still occurs. So there is the metabolic effect of contraction, which results in damage. And there is also potentially maybe sarcomere popping theory. It's actually unclear. It is probably the combination of both. So meaning that there is some damage that is caused right when you train, yet it takes a day or two for you to feel the soreness. And that is probably because a majority of the experienced soreness is the repair process. So I think a better proxy than soreness is your actual performance. And if you're coming back into the gym, let's say a day after, and you're still sore and you can lift and actually progress, you're probably recovered even though you feel sore. Now to answer your question very directly, Eric, without all the theoretical background, when is there a level of soreness that actually causes me to say, no, 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 this is too early. When it alters your proprioception to the point where you're not performing the movement correctly, or, or, or normally, I should say. If you're really slowing down your eccentrics, if you're tentative, if you need more warm-up sets than is, than is kind of reasonable, quote-unquote, uh, and when your actual performance is impacted by pain, potentially you know, degrading your, your ability to, you're, you're inhibited, um, I think that that is when. If you are psychologically like, in, intimidated by the level of soreness you have, 
then we probably aren't ready to train again. But um, yeah, I think for the most part, it is more about the the performance side of it for me than it is the soreness. Um, and understanding that when you introduce new exercises or longer muscle length training or exercises that you have done semi-recently, but at a much longer length or with much higher volumes, uh, or sorry, that are more eccentrically dominant. Like if you haven't, you haven't done RDLs for a full training cycle, but you've, you know, you did them two muscle cycles ago and you did some conventionals, you bring RDLs back in, you're going to be sore. So, um, for me, it's once it actually alters proprioception, proprioception might in- introduce injury risk or when it co-varies with poor performance, that's when I think we aren't quite ready to train yet. Yeah. Great answer. I'm, I'm going to dive in and do a couple really quick ones here, if you don't mind. And then we'll do that last one on the outline and we'll be out of here and I'll be eating soup, drinking tea, doing sick person stuff. Um, so, uh, the first one I wanted to address here, it was a question about, uh, saturated fat. And so the question was, you know, why do all these different organizations and governing bodies say, hey, have fewer than 10% of your calories from saturated fat? You know, why don't they go with like a body weight based recommendation or something like that? Um, You know, basically it comes down to where that recommendation comes from, in my opinion. Um, Unfortunately for a lot of these dietary topics, it's often framed as a percentage of the diet because it's being implemented in all these different populations with different body sizes and different body composition characteristics. So it's a little bit easier in the in a, the broadest sense to just kind of say, okay, however much you're eating, we're going to just go a percentage of total calories and, and frame it that way. And normally it, it does okay because in these types of studies, people are not doing a 5,000 calorie bulking diet. They're not in the Tour de France. They're also not on the 800 calorie weight loss diet. Um, so it usually ends up being people are eating about 2,000, 2,500 calories a day, maybe a little bit higher. Um, so anyway, the, the, the 10% number comes from really two basic uh, bodies of literature. So on one hand, you've got kind of observational literature where they look at relationships between saturated fat intake and either blood lipid outcomes or uh, actual heart disease outcomes um, in the more longer term uh, perspective. And so, so there's this observational data going on over here. And then over here, there's also experimental data, a completely different kind of set of literature where they'll actually go into somebody's diet and say, we're going to replace, you know, this much saturated fat with this much monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fat. And so these organizations have basically looked at these two different uh, bodies of literature and said, okay, if we want to set a guideline that is most likely to, you know, attenuate the effects of excess saturated fat intake on blood lipids, which would potentially lead to heart disease outcomes, where would we set that number? And most of them gravitate toward about 10% of calories. Um, Now, you could argue based on the heart disease data, perhaps that's a little bit on the conservative side. Um, You know, the, the heart disease data gets particularly rough when saturated fat is getting up into like 18, 20% of total calories. And of course, that's assuming that you're eating a fairly typical amount of total calories, right? Just because you're on a super low calorie diet, you know, th- that could kind of skew how you look at these percentage things. So if you want to kind of convert these into more usable numbers that would scale better with different caloric intakes, I'd say basically calculate it as if you're eating a 2000 calorie diet and there's your number of grams, you know, th- that's kind of an easy way to do it. 
if you want to frame it to body weight, you know, what's the typical reference person, like 70 kilograms, theoretically, you can kind of make some of these conversions if you wish. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to emphasize, though, that there's more there's more to this um, than just a percentage of calories, right? So, for example, certain types of saturated fatty acids seem to have a much bigger impact on promoting the progression of atherosclerosis and heart disease than other types of saturated fatty acids. So um, I know a lot of folks who um, get really into the weeds on fat intake, you know, saying, eh, 10% is fine. You know, that, that gets them really worked up. And I understand there is much more nuance to it when you get into specific saturated fatty acids. But I would say as a general heuristic, limiting saturated fat intake to no more than 10% of total calories, it actually does a, a pretty good job. And I think you can get into the nuances and um, and certainly talk your talk your way into alternative recommendations, but I do think it's a pretty solid starting point uh, for most applications. Uh, another question more on the practical side, someone um, mentioned, uh, Jimmy asked, I, I've talked about doing something resembling cluster sets in my training in the past and basically how I structure that. It's really, really simple. So I usually do this when I'm either crunched for time or I'm just like mentally not into it. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to do the thing, but I'm, I cannot make myself sit around and wait two minutes, do another set, wait two more minutes, do another set. It's really when I'm getting kind of antsy. Like I just want to go in and get it done and, and do things. Um, even if I'm not in a, a rush in terms of time, it's I just don't want to wait around and be all like, you know, you, you know how you get kind of kind of antsy and jittery and you just want to do stuff. I want to be moving. So um, sometimes what I'll do, I'll get on the machine. One machine where I love to do this is a uh, seated chest fly. Beautiful, beautiful machine. Just absolutely brutal. Um, every time I do it, I think of those bird stretching studies where they stretch their pectorals. And I'm like, oh, I feel like a bird here. But, uh, you know, I'll sit down. I'll set my my load that, that's appropriate for me. Maybe do uh, eight reps or so. And this this might deviate a bit from the textbook uh, application of how you're supposed to do it, but this is just how I like to do it. Um, just going full guru here, Dr. Helms. I, I hope you love it. But I'll sit down, I'll do about eight repetitions, leave a couple in the tank, and I'll just stay put right on the machine, wait until I feel like, yeah, I could probably, I'm probably good for about five more. You know, I'll do five more, leave one or two in the tank. And I basically just kind of do that a few times until I'm like, you know, okay, I can only get like three, and the third one is an absolute grind. And so what I find is that I can kind of accumulate the volume that I would have gotten over those three sets, but I can, you know, trim down those rest periods so they're not so boring and monotonous, and I can actually get it done in a much shorter period of time. So that, that's kind of the approach that I take, which is, um, you know, there's a couple different strategies in the literature that are vaguely similar to that, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, training is about the principles, right? And so you, you want to get a certain amount of volume. You want to make sure that uh, you're managing your proximity to failure in a way that's appropriate for the, the phase of training that you're in. And if you go really hard on that first kind of cluster of repetitions, all you're doing is giving yourself a longer rest period before you can do that second cluster. So yeah, it, it's kind of uh, the type of thing where over the years, I kind of gravitated my way toward training that way in certain times when I felt like it. And it was only afterward that I realized that there were actually terms to describe that and and studies on it and stuff like that. But it's kind of like getting back to with periodization when you 
when you kind of get into exercise science and physiology before you get into kind of the traditional training methods or, you know, here's what people are doing or here's specific training in the literature, when you just boil it down to basic principles of, I need to put some tension on the muscle, I need to accumulate some volume, I'm going to, you know, manage my intensity in a way that's appropriate for the amount of time I have in the gym. You, you kind of gravitate. It's it's not hard to imagine where these strategies come from. People will gravitate. You know, there's probably about 500,000 people. Well, that's a lot. Probably about 10,000 people that have independently invented something like cluster sets. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and the definitions of actually remembering that, again, sports science came after sport. Training has been around forever. And our study of it, we largely derive definitions from kind of what most people are ish doing and they don't always match up so if, like if we were to go to the literature and be like all right what's the definition of cluster sets you'd also find out what the definition of rest pause and rest redu- rest redistribution sets are yeah and they're all very related and if you were just to walk by someone while they're on a machine or in the squat rack you wouldn't know which one they were doing unless you kept watching them yeah so but i think as dr zardos would say and i'm going to channel him here ultimately we want to take the concepts from research and integrate them into our practice. And it's not that having consensus definitions is necessary in practice, but it is necessary for us to empirically test things or we're not always comparing apples and oranges or we're not, we're not always comparing apples to apples. We might have a meta-analysis where we've got one comparison to oranges, one comparison to bananas, and we make false conclusions. So I've been involved, uh, shout out to do- now Dr. Yukic, one of my PhD students, who's now graduated and he's on to work in uh, in the UK. Good for him. He's done a couple of meta-analyses on cluster sets. And it was necessary for us for coding to define some of these things. So a cluster set is when, irrespective of how long you want to rest between these clusters of reps, you're trying to optimize performance, which you can typically measure by maintaining velocity, right? Um, by taking many rests between sets. Rest redistribution, when it's compared to traditional training, the goal is to not exceed the amount of time you would use in a traditional set training. So what's the concept that we'd apply there? Okay, you're a team sport strength conditioning coach. You've got 45 minutes with the women's volleyball team, right? You were doing traditional sets. Everybody's doing three by 10. But you know what? You're getting closer to the game. You want less muscle damage. You want them training at a higher velocity. Okay, instead of uh, five, instead of three by five, we're going to do five by three, same load. So that now it's taken the same amount of time, you know, we're, we're not resting as long, but we're also further from failure. You could take a more extreme example of this. We're doing three by 10 as a hypertrophy phase. No, no, no. 10 by three. And we're just resting 20, 30 seconds between each one of those triples. And we're starting with a 10 RM load. So this is power training, right? 10 by three sounds like um, small off. I'm ready for it. It sounds like it. But it's if you're not- only using 70% of one RM, right? Yeah. So... That those are tools uh, where you are deciding what is the primary concern I have and what's my secondary concern. If my primary concern is, look, I only got 45 minutes with these athletes and my secondary concern is I need to optimize their power, you're going to use rest redistribution. If you're a one-on-one private strength conditioning coach and this 400-meter sprinter is coming to work with you and he's giving you an hour and a half his time on a Wednesday, you're going to get the most out of them you, you can for their time. And you're probably going to use cluster sets. Are, are you ready? Are you fully recovered? Are you ready to do another triple? Nah, coach, I, I think I need another minute of rest. Fantastic. 
you know, why not, right? If the goal is to maintain as much velocity on that barbell as possible. So that's the different scenarios where you integrate those concepts. And then rest pause is actually a bodybuilding thing where you're going to failure, you're resting 30 seconds, you're going to failure, you're resting 30 seconds. And it's probably best applied based upon the data we have comparing short rest to long rest only to things that don't produce a whole lot of cardiorespiratory fatigue, like single joint moments, uh, movements. And we see that a series of, say, four to five rest pauses is roughly equivalent, just like drop sets are, to, say, three sets where you do traditional training. And because you're not getting this cardiometabolic fatigue and discomfort that masquerades as, as muscle failure or just creates this overall global fatigue that inhibits your ability to go to true muscular failure, you can get to the same place but and, and save some time. So this is the, oh, shit, I forgot the YMCA closes at 4 p.m. on Saturday. And I actually have six sets of arms left. So instead, what I'm going to do is do a, a drop series of four biceps and immediately go into a drop set series or rest pause series of four triceps and get done in 10 minutes, walk out the door with a sick pump. And the manager's like, oh, by the way, we're close. Oh, nice arms. And you're like, thank you. I intended that the whole time. When in actuality, you had to cut your workout short 20 minutes. Yeah. So that's the, the concepts for all of them and how to apply them in rapid style format, Eric. Awesome. Do you have time for one more? You know I do. All right. So I wanted to get to this one because Shane, he's a, a hero in the mass group. He's always posted in yes, the mass Facebook group. And we haven't gotten to his question. It's been a couple of weeks here. So I wanted to make sure we, we went into overtime to address Shane's question. So Shane's question is, uh, he's curious about how to program cardio for health and longevity and also for improved fitness. And the, the kind of root of his question, he's, he's wondering if we have like, a couple twins, one twin, you know, does 300 minutes of cardio per week. The other twin only does 40 minutes of cardio per week, but is just in fantastic shape. What's really important there? Is it doing the cardio or is it having a high level of cardiorespiratory fitness? What's really helping them in terms of health and longevity? Um, and then he kind of asked a similar question for, um, for a lifter. Is it better to be someone who lifts frequently or someone who's strong and, and muscular. Um, and so you could probably do a whole podcast episode on this and dig into all sorts of studies on the matter. But I want to just kind of briefly address why this is a tricky question. So um, if we focus, for example, on physical activity versus like, like aerobic activity versus aerobic fitness, if we focus on the cardio side, one of the challenges there is if we try to take an observational approach, we're going to have issues with multicollinearity, right? The, the people who tend to do a lot of, of exercise in aggregate are going to be the folks who tend to develop a better base of aerobic fitness. doesn't always mean that it's going to be a one-to-one -one correlation between amount of activity and aero aerobic adaptations, but they'll definitely be correlated, which is going to make it uh, kind of difficult to pick those apart. So, so that's going to be one area that makes it challenging. And then, of course, it's hard to do a study. You know, I, I mentioned that's for uh, observational data. It's hard to do experimental studies on longevity in humans. You know, like you, you're going to change something, do it for the rest of your life, and we'll check back in over the next 40 years. It's kind of hard to do that type of thing. So, um, so that's why some of these questions elude us for a lot longer than we would initially expect. Um, another area that makes this challenging is there are independent mechanisms that are complementary, okay? And so what that means is, Helms, you did a great uh, write-up in, in mass um, one month where you were looking where 
even among athletes, there are negative effects of excess sed- sedentary time. Like competitive team sport athletes who are highly, highly active and highly aerobically fit. So there are independent mechanisms of, you know, first of all, being aerobically fit, which is definitely positive for health and longevity, but also being someone who is active, who accumulates plenty of activity throughout the week, uh, potentially does exercise at some different intensities throughout the week, and breaks up their sedentary time throughout the week. And I think you could make a decent claim that there are some slightly independent effects of all these different things that fall under the umbrella of being a fit person who does cardio. And so that's why this gets really tricky. Another area where it's get, it gets tricky is that there appear to be arguably ceiling effects. And, and what I mean by that is if we wanted to uh, break fitness level or physical activity level into like quintiles, so zero to 20 percentile, 20 to 40, 60 to 80, 80 to 100, I would argue that if your goal was health and longevity, you know, be as aerobically fit as you want. If we're going to treat that like it's in a vacuum, great. Be in the fifth quintile, 100 out of 100, most aerobically fit. That's great. The question is, how do you get there? It's usually by being the person who's in the fifth quintile for the amount of exercise you're doing. And what's really interesting is that I would argue from a health and longevity perspective, when it comes to doing like cardio endurance exercise, you might be better off in the fourth quintile rather than the fifth quintile. There are some studies that folks who do like really intense marathon and ultra marathon training do actually have morphological changes to the heart that can actually be somewhat detrimental and do uh, modestly increase the prevalence of uh, cardiac events. Um, that, that can be quite serious. So that that's what's kind of tricky is that there seems, there's definitely a there appears to be a ceiling effect to some extent where too much can actually start to backfire a little bit with the actual activity. I'm not aware of necessarily a ceiling effect with when it comes to the actual aerobic fitness adaptations, but I'm also not aware of a lot of folks who get to that level of ultra endurance adaptations without doing the ultra endurance exercise that that gets you there. Um, so for all these reasons, having like an easy heuristic is going to be really hard to come by. We're talking about interplays between volume, intensity, distribution, timing, age, ceiling effects. There, there's a lot that goes into the equation into the equation here. And so the way that I would try to answer this without doing a full um, a full podcast episode on it when it comes to cardio is I would say you've got if you're helping someone who has these goals, you've got three priorities. Number one, break up sedentary time. And that's kind of divorced from total amount of not totally, but that's kind of a separate thing from the total amount of cardio accumulated and, um, you know, their, what their VO2 max is, for example. That's something that across all fitness levels and activity levels, that can be a goal to break up sedentary time throughout the day. Easy way to do that is, you know, you could do little exercise snacks. You could just say, hey, let's try to do two or three short walks throughout the day if schedule permits. Easy stuff. It doesn't. You don't have to be a hamster on a wheel moving all day long. But getting a few targeted opportunities to break up sedentary time, that seems to be an independent factor that is worth modifying. Number two, hitting the basic government guidelines for accumulated physical activity. Um, you know, we've, we've reviewed research in mass indicating that when people hit those guidelines, they work pretty well. They, they act, there's actual data there to support those guidelines. Um, and those guidelines are 150 to 300 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise or 75 to 100 minutes a week of vigorous intensity exercise. 
big caveat, you fitness freaks out there, everyone listening to this, vigorous doesn't mean what you think it means. Vigorous, I'm pretty sure they define it as like six Mets. Like that is not, we're not talking about high intensity interval training, which I know a lot of people think, man, 75 minutes of hit. You're not doing 75 minutes of hit to meet these criteria. Um, I'm pretty sure six Mets is the cutoff there, which is a, it's a brisk pace, but it's, it's not interval training or sprint training. Um, it's probably jogging for most people. Yeah. I think most people get, would get there with what they consider a very comfortable jog. Um, yeah. so break up sedentary time, accumulate the, the, the amounts within those guidelines. And then my third one is I would say, let's try to get our VO2 max into the good or the excellent range, according to the ACSM. Easy to Google those tables. They're, they're broken down by definitely age. And I, I believe by biological sex as well. Um, and so from my perspective, this is kind of the easy way to give a list of, well, if we want to navigate this weird mixture of, is it activity? Is it fitness level? What's going on here? I think you can set these three sets of goals independently and really help nudge someone toward a program that's going to be good for their aerobic fitness level, uh, the amount of exercise they're doing in aggregate, and also breaking up that sedentary time. So I would say rather than trying to create some fake merger of these three distinct categories, I would have independent goals for each of them. And uh, what you'll find is that when you meet one, you usually meet the other two if you're doing it in a pretty sensible way. And then I do want to at least acknowledge when it comes to, um, since there was a part about lifting, is it better to be someone who lifts a lot versus someone who's strong and muscular? That one I think is actually a little bit more simple to me. Uh, perhaps I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. For that one, I, I think it is a little bit more straightforward where if we're talking about how lifting facilitates and helps with health and longevity, it's usually pretty simple stuff. It's usually, you know, lifting helps because it builds bone density or it creates more muscle mass, which is kind of a sink for glycemic control in, in some cases. Um, or prevention. Yeah, yeah, prevention, um, and and then also um, helping with Sorry, fall, fall prevention, fall, fall prevention. Yeah, and then um, on, on top of that, you've got just maintaining activities of daily living, which is directly related to fall prevention in a way. Um, so I think when it comes to resistance training, it really is the adaptations that we're shooting for, right? Um, which is not to downplay the role of doing it because doing it is how the adaptations happen. But, uh, but I think with, with training or with weight training, in my opinion, the calculus is a lot more straightforward, which is, you know, if you're doing what you need to do to maintain bone density, to maintain functionality, reduce uh, the frequency and severity of falls, um, and, you know, perhaps there's some metabolic benefit of just maintaining more muscle mass. I think if you had to choose what's more important there, the active training or the adaptations for that, I'd say the adaptations. What do you think helps? Honestly, I, I, you, that was such a comprehensive answer that covered uh, all of the important stuff uh, that, that I, I don't have much to add and I fully agree with everything you've said. And yeah, a lot of the times we try to isolate variables in science that are intrinsically linked, you know? Um, is it more important to reduce your sedentary time or to increase your step count? Well, anytime you're stepping, you're not sedentary. So it's there, there's we live in a, in a universe that has time. Yeah. So I think... Um, one thing I will say is just to kind of make some assumptions about our general audience and then give some recommendations because honestly, that's what I think the, the rubber hits the road, right? Um, if you're regularly lifting three or more times per week and you're doing so with the types of volumes 
and the proximities to failure that are going to introduce adaptations and strength or hypertrophy, I think that definitely quote unquote counts towards your moderate and vigorous minutes from the recommendation. Uh, the second thing I would say is, yeah, Eric talked about um, threshold effects where you could actually get a negative adaptation from doing a tremendous amount of cardiovascular training. I don't think anyone's at risk for that. But a related concept is when you start getting into diminishing returns from the benefits of activity. Um, and that seems to occur somewhere around like the six to 8,000 step range. Uh, and we look at just the step counts and people who are not training. Um, when you're hitting in that range, you are eliminating any of the effects of being sedentary as a negative. Uh, and I think when you combine that with like if you're getting six to 8,000 steps per day and you're resistance training three or more times per week, I think anything on top of that from a health perspective is going to have such a marginal effect that it may not be worth it unless you like to be more active than that. And then more power to you, you'll probably get mental health benefits from it that would actually be meaningful. Um, but if you're worried about your health and you're someone who's clocking that many steps and you're training that frequently, progressively and getting adaptations from it, um, I think you've, you've done pretty much everything you can. Now, if you want to be just someone who's harder to kill, I know that's, that's something that people say in the fitness industry. I just want to look like I'm harder to kill. I don't actually want to be harder to kill. Uh, cause I live in an abundance mindset, Eric. I don't think anyone's going to try to kill me. Yeah. Watch me get killed. Um, but if you are actually like, you know, I, what's the most in shape I can be from cardiovascular training without impeding my resistance training. Now you've got a lot of leeway based upon the whole interference effect data, which is almost another tangent we could go on. I'm not going to go on it. Um, but let's just say that, uh, the effect on strength and hypertrophy, uh, is in that order less than power. And so long as you're separating them by days or at least eight hours, or if you're thinking about the the order and then the the longevity, sorry, the uh, the length of time spent doing each one of those cardio sessions in the modality, is it high impact? Does it have an eccentric component? You could very easily add one to three cardiovascular training sessions per week on top of a robust training protocol for hypertrophy and strength and six to eight thousand steps, and you'd get in better cardiovascular shape. Probably wouldn't help your health, to be honest, based upon what I, I said. But you would be harder to kill. You would be in better shape. You would place better at the CrossFit Games if that's, your, if that's your jam. And I don't think it would have any negative impact, if done right, on your strength and hypertrophy goals. So that's if you really want to win the health, performance, and activity uh, Olympics. But if you're looking, like me, for example, to have no negative health outcomes and maximize within a reasonable ROI the health benefits while pursuing my pretty damn specific goals of being a really a really, really good bodybuilder, um, then six to 8,000 steps in resistance training is all I'm going to do. And if my VO2 max isn't that great, I'm not too worried about it because I don't need it to be that great. Amen. I hear you. All right, Helms, we went way over. We get extra credit this week. Um, I think people enjoyed it. That's what, that's what the goal is. Uh, as always, I want to thank everyone for joining us in the live chat. Very much appreciate it. We enjoy the people listening after the fact as well. Uh, we'll be here live Wednesdays, 7 p.m. And I usually try to get things up on the podcast platforms eh, by Friday-ish, Saturday-ish, something like that. Uh, but if you want the good stuff, YouTube is where it's at, fresh every Wednesday night. I'll be back one week from tonight with another episode. Helms, thanks so much. You were an, absolute, uh, an absolute hero. Just a great episode. 
And uh, I'm not, I don't remember who will be here next week, but it will be me and another person. Everyone, once again, thanks so much for joining us. Take care, and I will see you in a week.